pain has a way of clipping our wings and keeping us from being able to fly. And if left unresolved, you can almost forget that you were ever created to fly in the first place. Those were written by our guest today, William Paul Young, who is the author of several books, including the very wonderful bestseller, The Shack. Paul is married to Kim and together they have six children. They are the in-laws to four and grandparents of nine. Twelve. Oh, I, need to up, I need to update I my bio. Yes, you need to update that. Yes, you yeah. do. So we will start with that paragraph again. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Paul is married to Kim, and together they have six children, are the in-laws to four, and grandparents of 12. Paul is the author of the best-selling novel, The Shack, as we said, also of Crossroads, Eve, and The Shack and Crossroads Reflections. Paul, it is our joy to have you join with us today. It's absolutely an honor. Loved being with you before and, uh, and so looking forward to this. Well, it's been four years since we first met you, if you, you remember. It was about this time of year. It was. And in fact, uh, we just want to let our audience know that we postponed this interview from yesterday because of a snowstorm that we had here in Pennsylvania, and we couldn't get to our office, and, and we were not able to record this, so we postponed it. Oh, yes. You know, if you lived in Minnesota, we'd still have it. It would have happened yesterday. Yeah, we understand, <laughs> we understand that. We remember that day four years ago. You know, we were so nervous because we your flight was a, a delayed a day getting in. And uh, we had come from uh, a, a conference in Florida and we were delayed overnight. And we had an event that you were speaking at the night that we all got in. And we were, we were very anxious about that. But Paul, we just want to say that you put us at ease. Uh, you probably don't remember what you said to us, but the first words uh, when we saw you at the airport, first, first of all, you gave each of us a huge hug. Mm -hmm. And secondly, then you said, I really loved your book. I did. The first book that we had written together. I do. And um, we, you, you have no idea how that felt to come <laughs> from you. So we appreciated that very much. And it was, you know, one of those, one of those days your luggage was delayed and, uh, you know, there was just, just a lot of problems. And we, um, we got into, this is Michael, we got into my car, which was a 2007 uh, Honda Civic, you know, a small, you know, little car, it didn't cost a lot of money. And, and we uh, went on our way to the event. And we also were, were, were thought about the fact that um, a couple of years ago on the Academy Awards, and this is, as we're recording this, is, is Oscar week. And there was a presenter who was giving the award for the best documentary short film, which are kind of obscure films that not too many people see. And when he came out uh, to, to introduce this, he said, this is my favorite award because this is going to be the only award of the evening that's not going home in a limousine, as all the others will be <laughs> because of the people who were winning them. But the person or people who win this one, they're probably going to be going, going home tonight with this Oscar in a Honda Civic. And um, we, <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't know I drive a Honda Accord. Do you so really? Oh, no, we didn't. It, it was a 2008, so I was up on you a little bit. Well, that's great because that speaks to what we're trying to say is that you had such a sense, have such a sense of humility. And we value that tremendously. We saw it immediately when we met you four years ago, and we continue to see that and hear that in you. And we want to thank you for that. Oh, it's the easiest thing I know how to do is be myself. 
it's, you know, trying to be somebody else was a lot of work. And uh, I finally gave up on it. Well, I had a little help from my friends too. <laughs> hey, Paul, Maya Angelou is a favorite of ours, and I think you as well. And she once said that, Absolutely. that the ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. Would you tell us a little bit more about and why it was a bit, dare we say, unusual of your upbringing and what the word home means to you? Wow. You're talking to a third culture kid. And, and uh, for those of who don't know, a third culture kid is a, is a child who's raised in a culture that is different from his passport. And so uh, my parents were Canadian. I was born Canadian, but I was a year old when we went to the highlands of New Guinea missionary kid. So third culture kids would include like missionary kids and diplomat kids and business kids that uh, happen or, uh, you know, military kids that grow up in a culture distinctly different from their parents. And the reason it's called third culture is because that's where you have a sense of home until you're uprooted from that and put back into your passport culture or another one and where you don't belong, where you don't fit, you don't feel like you fit. And then um, by the time you get back to the culture you grew up in, you don't fit there anymore either. So you end up being sort of a global nomad and belonging becomes a huge issue for third culture kids, you know, or for displaced persons or refugees. And, and, and I've always said, you know, unless you find someone to belong to, you never feel like you belong anywhere. And add to that a very difficult relationship with my father. And um, a sense of home had nothing to do with my relationship with my parents. My mother was in his shadow. My father didn't have a chip for being a dad. He was an abusive disciplinarian, so he just terrified me. When I was six, I was sent away to boarding school, which was the big shocker. That's when I found out that I was white, for one thing. I mean, uh, it was not a conscious awareness before that. But in that transition, suddenly, I lost my culture, lost my sense of family, which was tribal. And I lost... Um, the, the whole, all the traditions of that, um, um, a sense of belonging to the tribe, even though, and I have to say this, uh, and those of you who know my story, the sexual abuse began in the tribal culture. So it was like someone in the family abusing you. And then when I got to boarding school at six, it was peer on peer. The big boys would molest the little boys at night. And uh, so any sense of being connected to a place or even a community of people was shattered by the time I was six. And, um, and then at 10, we moved back to Canada. Um, my father became an itinerant pastor. We, I went to 13 schools before I graduated high school. So, you know, every hello was just a goodbye waiting to happen. Early on, my misser got broken, so I never missed anybody. I just shut all of that down. And I actually carried that into my marriage. And and about six weeks into our, our marriage, I gone hunting with a bunch of guys. And when I got back, Kim said, so did you miss me? And, and I was in one of those cycles where it was like, I really want to be honest. I, I really do. I really want to be a truth teller. And she caught me right in one of those cycles. And so I told her no, which was devastating to her. And, I, and I, at the time I said to her, I don't have a misser. I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like to belong. And um, so we'll be married now 40 years coming up in September. I have a huge misser now. And, and I, don't, I don't like being away from home and my kids and my grandkids. And 
And so it's uh, home is now plethora of relationships, you know, grounded in Kim and then the kids and grandkids and, and in friendships and things like that. So, um, and I, I agree with Maya, you know, uh, home is where you get to be yourself. And, um, and now I'm sort of at home anywhere, but especially with the relationships that matter most to me. You've, um, you, as you mentioned your relationships, uh, we know that you've talked a lot about Kim. Could you tell us more about her? Sure. What it is that, why you miss her and, and when you're not around her and what it is that she brings to your life? Ooh, great question. It's almost like it should be Valentine's Day or something. And um, <laughs> so Kim, uh, she was born in Minot, North Dakota, you know, where there's no 50 shades and nothing. I've been there. I've been there once. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been there. I, we spent a week there one day and uh, <laughs> uh, it's wow. uh, Minot, North Dakota is, um, you know, it's in the middle of the, the Midwest. And so it's either this or that it's either black or white. I mean, there's just no, there's no gray areas. And, um, and I think it instills a, a, a real sense of grounding into it's an earth culture area with the farmers and the ranchers and Kim's family migrated West, uh, because her dad, whose name is Willard, and Willard lived with us for 17 years. We all called him Willie. So when you read The Shack and you run into the character Willie or see it in the movie, that's Kim's dad. That's a personification of Kim's dad. And um, so uh, a very kind man, but he was born in Castle Rock, Washington. So eventually the family all migrated west. And he, she has a huge family, five sisters and two brothers, all with big families. If you know, if you got everybody together for a family reunion, just the the actual brothers, sisters, uh, husbands, wives, and kids and grandkids, like that group, there'd be over 150. And um, so it's huge. And Kim and her five sisters are called the Force. And uh, and and may the may the Force be with you. And uh, you know, part of the reason that I'm as healthy as I am is because. Um, uh, of Kim's fury. I tell people I, I married the wrath of God. And, uh, and, but that's because I believe now that the wrath of God is something that is for us, not against us. It is, it is as McDonald would say, not a God who would stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in us. And I had so much damage and so far to go. And I got past Kim's crap detector and her mom's and a miracle of grace that was completely unfair to her. She ended up having to deal with all my baggage uh, while I did, and she didn't have to. Um, thankfully, I hit the bottom when I blew up the world, and and um, that started a whole 11-year process uh, that took for me and Kim to reconcile. And, um, and now we're the best we've ever been, but, I mean, we lost stuff in that journey. But Kim is powerful. She's strong. She always wanted to be a mom and a grandma, and, and she's the best I know. Here's, here's a, a way that people who know her describe her. They say, you know, she's incredibly wise. Now, if you ask Kim, she just thinks it's common sense. Like, you know, this is just the way it is. This is common sense. But um, she's loyal. She is not afraid of stepping into a conflict and of stating her opinion. She is not a meek, mild, submitted Christian woman, thankfully. And it's because of those elements that I am now doing what I do. 
um, because of the health that's in me is largely part of what she brought into my world, thankfully. And she would say that she didn't do it all right and all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't really care. You know, it, the intensity of her love and fury is, it had a significant place in my healing journey. Wasn't it the comedian Jim Carrey who once said that behind every great man is a woman who's rolling her eyes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or who's surprised. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, you know, it's, and it's, the thing about it is that as we become authentic people, we are an expression of all the relationships that have fed into our lives. And our spouses would have amongst the greatest of significance with regard to that. You know, I was, uh, I did a conference last year with Richard Rohr on the Trinity, and many know who, who he is. He's a Franciscan priest who's had an incredible ability to, to bridge the gap between um, the Protestant Christian community and the Catholic uh, Christian community. Uh, very diverse communities, but we're, we're riding along. And he's as surprised of, of what's happened in his life as I am in mine, because he was a Kansas City farm boy. And, you know, he just served in the prison there for, I don't know, 30 years or something in New Mexico. And and um, so, but we're driving along and he says, he says, Paul, here's a very strange thing for a celibate Franciscan priest to say. But he said, you know, I believe that marriage is one of the greatest gifts that God gave the human race because it puts you into a crucible that is not easy to get out in which all of your stuff can come to the surface and there be a possibility of healing. And, um, and I think that's partly why marriage is, is so um, defamed uh, in the modern culture is because people don't want to actually deal with their stuff and marriage really brings it to the surface. It's not that there isn't justification for divorce. There really is. And I've been around a number of situations where there's just no question about it. Uh, no justification for adultery, but definitely justification for divorce. But having said that, a lot of the reasons that people bail out are because they don't want to deal with what's what's going on in their own hearts. So yeah, Kim's fantastic. We know in a lot of your interviews, Paul, you talk about this concept of living in the grace of one day. In fact, we remember at our event, you talked about it. Uh, as fathers ourselves, we know the profound impact that kids have on our being. In fact, we're hearing kids in the background, it sounds like, which is fantastic. They teed that up for me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Grandbabies. Yep. Kids remind us yep. how to just sit and rest in the grace of the day. And do you have any examples of how kids have taught you that? Well, sure. Uh, and grandbabies, I think, are better at it because you don't have as many... Uh, many things, many, as many distractions as you might've had at one time. And, uh, you know, when, when you're raising kids, it's still about you. My point about how great being a grandfather is, is that hopefully by the time you get there, your kids already beat the snot out of your self-centeredness. There is a slowing down or it's not, it's not even that you're physically slowing down. It's that you are more aware of the relationships that are happening around you. And this is science has shown this psychological science has shown this that as, as you age, that's an invitation. There's an invitation to be more aware of what's actually right in front of you, not some imagined future tripping self-projection or creation. And children by nature know how to live in the grace of the day. They're not worried about five-year plans. They're not even worried about what tomorrow's gonna hold unless someone has made life dangerous for them. It's the same with trust. Children know how to trust 
until someone convinces them that it's dangerous. Children are such a contradiction to the adult world of production and performance. They're an anomaly inside that world. And um, so for me, with 12 grandbabies who are all 11 years old and under, and nine of them within 15 minutes, play becomes sort of the, the space that's occupied. And, uh, and that slows everything down. And then, and then it's like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, there is something that is absolutely right about being like a child. I mean, that's Jesus' words, right? Unless you become like a child, you won't even see the kingdom of God. You, your eyes won't be open to it because you're not present to see it. Because the kingdom happens in the presence and in the present. And so um, children are always calling us back to our humanity and, and, a, and away from the images that we have created for ourselves to possess. And I love that. There's a simplicity to it. There's a, a joy to it. I'll tell you a, little, a really cool story. Croatia... The Ministry of Culture sent me a letter and they said, we have informally adopted the shack as our book of the decade. And <laughs> wow. we were wondering if you would, I know, I know. That's, yeah, it's totally expected, right? right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. not, not in a million years, right? So, so it's like, oh, oh my gosh, are you serious? Is, is this a prank call? You know? Right. And, uh, and they said, they said, no, we've adopted your book. And we're wondering if you would come to Croatia and speak to the country. To the country. <laughs> to the country. Said, it's a whole country. Sure. Right? It's a yeah. big country. <laughs> to the country. Yeah. So, so, so one of the things I've learned is that if, if you're presented with something impossible, say yes. I mean, wow. it's, it's like, so I said, yes. So I go over there. And one of the first things that happens is we have a big town meeting in a center uh, square in Zagreb in the capital. And uh, it's in the evening. And they said, we're not sure how many are going to come because it's summer vacation. But uh, we wanted to make this available. And there were like five PhDs that were going to sit at the table with me and ask me questions and then open it up to whoever showed up while well, the place was packed. I mean, it's a standing room barely. And uh, mm -hmm. um, so uh, we go for about an hour with the, with all the smart people and me. And, uh, and then they, they open it up to the community and hands go up all over the place. And there was a gentleman to my right in the front row, distinguished looking three piece suit, um, immaculately dressed with a really cool hat, a cane, the whole thing, you know, and, and he puts his hand up. And as soon as he does, everybody in the place puts theirs down. Oh. And I'm thinking like, okay, I don't know who this is, but he's somebody, somebody important. And, um, <laughs> yeah. yep. And he stands up and he says, he's a, he's an older man. And he says, he says, you know, Croatia has been a country of revolution and, uh, we have experienced horrible losses through revolution. And we've had a series of great revolutionaries in our history. He said, I've read everything you've written and I consider you to be a revolutionary. Do you consider yourself a revolutionary? And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. I mean, who would ever ask that? I mean, it's never even crossed my radar, right? And it's one of those moments where, you know, there's this verse that says, don't prepare what you're going to say to kings and princes, because in the moment that you are to speak, I will give you what to say. I'll put it, the words in your mouth, right? 
And so I just opened my mouth and out comes this, which wasn't premeditated, never thought of it. One of those things where you just think, well, the Holy Spirit loves to make us look good. And, um, <laughs> and I said, no, I don't consider myself a revolutionary. I consider myself a child and children are by nature revolutionaries. And he goes, yes. And he just raises his hands up and the whole place just erupts like this massive celebration of the simplicity of what childlikeness does in a world that's so lost in their agendas and the complexity of their broken relationships. It's like one of the prophets and we put a child in the middle and the child will make all the difference. That's phenomenal. That is phenomenal. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. You, you, you conjure up a number of questions for us as, you, as we listen to this. You've written once that um, aspirations of success and visions of significance and dreams of grandeur all died a long time ago. And I have absolutely no interest in resurrecting them. I finally figured out that I have nothing to lose by living a life of faith and trust. I know more joy every minute of every day than seems appropriate, but I love the wastefulness of my Papa's grace and presence. What does it mean to you to live a life of faith and trust? And, and, and you know, what, how does that intersect too with giving up control over our lives? Ooh, yes, because when you deal with fear, you've got one of two choices. You can either trust or you can control. And uh, there is no third option. And, um, and I think that's partly why broken people uh, like me love religion. Because, you know, trust was a huge issue. Sexual abuse and my relationship with my dad and uh, all this moving around and stuff. Um, and uh, the bullying and, you know, all the stuff that you deal with in the world. Who are you going to trust? And then you're presented a vision of God that's untrustworthy seriously, God the Father. And that one took me a long time because I, I grew up modern evangelical fundamentalist and, and we did not have a caricature of God that was trustworthy. We had Jesus who was trustworthy, but not God the Father. And, um, and so, you know, part of my journey was to unravel not only the lies that I had agreed to and believed about myself, delivered to me by others, and then perpetrated by myself, uh, my own self-loathing and shame but also the lies that were delivered to me theologically about the character and nature of God. Because you can't trust someone that you don't believe is good all the time. And so give me religion, because I don't have to trust God. I just have to know what I'm supposed to do. So my journey was a journey, my journey my whole life, and will always be, is a journey deeper and deeper into trust. And so that's where living in the grace of the day came from. That's where I began to realize I'm never present. I'm always running into some imagination that doesn't exist. You know, some way my kids are going to be injured or damaged or hurt, or I'll lose a job and I'll end up penniless and we're going to end up bankrupt and under the bridge downtown Portland or, you know, in a, in a cardboard box. And I mean, I've been to my own funeral a bunch of times and I'm the only one who <laughs> cried and ticked me off and and, uh, you know, but, but we do this on a massive scale, but we do it on a very daily projecting ourselves, you know, um, say we're struggling in a relationship. Well, we imagine every kind of scenario, every conversation possible. So I'm going to say this to them. They're going to say this to me. I'm going to say this to them. Then we're just, we're just going to go different ways. So why even talk to them in the first place? 
you know, or I'm not going to tell my wife, I'm not going to be authentic about this particular part of my life because, and then we fabricate all kinds of things. Like I, I don't want to bother her. I don't want her to be worried or nervous or, you know, and, and we noblize our inability to be authentic and a truth teller. All of it is scrambling to deal with fear of one sort or another or shame of one sort or another. And the, and the journey into trust, I mean, it was slow and incremental, but one of the things was I had to learn how to stop being a future tripper. And that allowed me to stay present to what was actually in front of me, not some imagination that I was projecting that was fear-based. And, um, and that's where everything settled down, you know? And, and so w when I talk about the shack to people, I say, here's something you need to understand. Two things. One is I made 15 copies at Office Depot that did everything I ever wanted that book to do. Seriously. I, I didn't intend to be a published author. I didn't intend for, you know, this worldwide phenomenon and all this stuff. The 15 copies I made did everything. Um, the second thing is everything that mattered to me was in place before I wrote the book. Identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, and love. They were all in place before I wrote the book. So the book has not given me any of those things. It has given me um, an entree, an invitation into the holy ground of other people's stories. There's no question about that. And I, ah, we're all grateful for that. But, um, but as far as identity or worth or significance, I mean, it, it took me until I was 50 years old to realize my significance is who I am, not what I do. And therefore, nobody can tamper with it. It's ontological. It's not performance-based. And so I can do anything. I can clean toilets. Um, I can uh, care for an elderly family member who is, who is dying and needs to be cleaned up on a daily basis. I can, I can go on an adventure with grandkids. I can, I can go fishing with friends. I, I can significance is not the doing part. I am significant. I, I am the gift. Sounds so self-centered the way I grew up. You know, anything that was positive about yourself was, was a contrary to humility. And what I've learned is that humility is simply being comfortable inside your own skin, just being yourself. But that's a journey because, you know, we believe all kinds of things about ourselves that aren't true, including theology that's told us that, you know, all we are is worthless and depraved. So the journey to get to a place where I'm comfortable inside today's grace and I'm not scrambling. I don't need the shack. I don't need what it has brought. I'm thrilled to participate. I am so grateful at what it has done in the world and continues to do, but I don't need it. If all of this quit, and Kim would tell you this, and my kids would tell you this, my friends would tell you this, if all of this shut down tomorrow, and, and I went back to working my three jobs, cleaning toilets, and that's what I was, one of the, my jobs when I was, wrote the shack. I'd be great. I'd be great because I know who I am. So I, I, I love the simplicity of, of finally becoming a child because I didn't get to do that when I was little. One of the messages we convey with the people that we listen to all the time is just to be authentic and that we'll never be our best and genuine selves, truly contented, truly at peace, truly free, if we did not or cannot be authentic about both our strengths and our vulnerabilities, about our joys and our sorrows. And, um, you know, maybe you could talk about what authenticity looks like 
for you? Yeah. Um, when I talk about wholeness and authenticity is part of wholeness, wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. The way of your being is how you choose and live your life and the, the choices that are you're making that are right in front of you. But uh, wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. So what's the truth of your being? That's the big question. And that's why a theology that says the truth of your being is that you're worthless gives you absolutely no foundation for the way of your being to be anything but a cover-up false righteousness. And so authenticity is where you begin to realize that the truth of your being is that you're made in the image and likeness of God. So everything that God is like is, is what you're like at the core. Yes, you may be covered up with all kinds of crap that's happened to you and brokenness, but you're, the truth of your being is deeper than your brokenness. The truth of your being is more fundamental than anything that's ever been done to you or anything you've ever done. But so many of us have been told that what we have done is the truth of our being and or that uh, God considers himself, uh, you know, holy, but hardly can stand to look at us because, you know, the truth of our being is we're depraved and it's not true. It's not true. So you can't build authenticity on, on shifting sand. You can't build authenticity on a lie. And so part of authenticity, you have to begin to unravel what the lies are in your life. Part of that is real confession. I believe this about myself. I believed, I, I can tell you a whole bunch of the lies that I believed. You know, I, I did believe I was worthless, that I was not good, that at the fundamentally deepest part of my being, I was not good. I didn't have self-control, that I, I wasn't faithful, I, I wasn't honest, I wasn't a truth teller. And you'd look at my life and you go like, yeah, you're right. You're not a truth teller. You're not this. And you're not patient and you're not kind. That's what I believed at the core. And for me to finally say, this is what I believe about myself. Then I could begin to dismantle the lies. That is not the truth. You know, and that happens in an encounter for me with God in terms of like, God is going like, no, let me tell you the truth of your being. Everything that I'm like, I'm kind, I'm good. I am pure of heart. I am faithful. I am self-controlled. And you're made in my image and likeness. So that's true about you. And then authenticity is beginning to match that truthfulness to how you live your life. And becoming a truth teller, that is essential, which means you can't keep your secrets. You've got to be exposed. You can't keep hiding. A lot of us, that's just too high a price to pay. We'd rather the prison that we know than the freedom that might be possible. And that's where so many people get stuck. They just, they're, they're afraid if they, if they tell the truth, which is a movement toward authenticity, if they allow themselves to be exposed. And Leanne Payne says, you know, the unexposed is the unhealed. And the Holy Spirit comes to convict. And that word means to expose, not to make you look like a fool or not to embarrass you, even though it's very embarrassing. But that's not the intention. The intention is your wholeness. Intention is for you to be filled with love's kind instead of all this brokenness and mask wearing and secrets, all the things that move us toward isolation and away from relationship. Was that something that you experienced or was that just something that you read or oh. learned about? Um, can you think of examples of somebody, what they said to you or embraced you? I can give you thousands of them. <laughs> 
<laughs> on both How much time do we have here? Yeah, on both sides. You know, when 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 my father would would beat the boys, and I was the firstborn, so you know, I got the spear tip end of that. But I tried to defend myself by saying, "I'll be good. I'll be good. Like, just give me another chance. I I can do this. It just don't hit me. I I promise I'll." And so every time you 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 scream out, "I'll be good," you're just driving deeper that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Over the course of your life, it's not just something you read. There has to be an internal come to Jesus moment as far as whether you are going to take the risk that the truth of your being is that you're kind, for example. So let me give you a very clarifying example of how this worked for me, partly because of my history and, and partly because of my absolute longing for unconditional love, I think where I didn't fail. Those things all wrapped up together. And there's also a lot of other little elements, but those are the underlying issues why I became addicted to pornography. And I was horribly uh, before I was 12 years old. And when we came back to Canada, um, I already was so broken in boarding school and everything else. That it, but the, the thing about porn is that it's the imagination of a relationship without the risk of a real one in, in which you create a fantasy that, that you are enough that you are enough. And, and then, you know, it spins into self-loathing and all that kind of stuff. And you're, you're caught in a cycle and um, uh, you become addicted to it. So what broke that addiction? And I haven't had an issue with it for 20 lots of years. What broke it? Was it finally I, I got self-disciplined? Well, no, self-discipline doesn't work. Uh, it, it's only temporary. It comes from the outside in. Self-control comes from the inside out. If you believe you're a piece of crap, you got no self-control. In fact, you got nothing on the inside that's good. Uh, adopt a righteousness that's external performance. But you know the whole time, you're just fooling people. And, and so when they show you kindness and affection or they give you a compliment, it's like just, uh, great, a compliment is just an, an, a new set of expectations that you're gonna fail at eventually for those of us who are shame-based like that. So what broke the addiction in my life was not an accountability group, was not self-discipline. It was the internal revelation and the choice to believe that God was telling the truth when he told me that I was a person who was pure of heart because I was made in the image and likeness of God. And that's when the truth of my being and the way of my being began to match. That's authenticity. So wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of my being. Well, the truth of my being is that I am pure of heart. That's the truth of my being. And therefore, the way of my being can naturally match it. And it was the, it was the displacement of a lie and the introduction to the truth that changed that for me. I mean, you can read it all you want. There has to be something that happens inside of you. Um, where you say, I am going to make a choice to agree with God about this, that the truth of my being is that I am kind, I am patient, and I'm to stop lying about it. When I, if I declare, you know, I'm just an impatient person, I'm lying. I'm not a truth teller. And the confession is, I've believed the lie that I'm an impatient person. And now the repentance is, I agree with God, I'm changing. I'm going to change and agree with God that the truth of my being is that I'm pure of heart. And the addiction fell away. Um, but 
not just in isolation either. It wasn't like, you know, because there was all other kinds of changes going on, including beginning to let real people into my life, not just imaginations of people. And finding in the face of someone who is God with skin on, that they loved me, that they could see me and they still loved me, that I could let them in my shack, they could see all the crap that was there. You know, I'm, I may not be a piece of crap, but my, my life was full of it. And, uh, you know, it's like Scott Klausner, who's my best friend, and, he, and he's the first man in my life. We were driving somewhere, uh, Montana, I think, and he turns to me and he says, this is way before the shack and stuff. He says, Paul, I just want you to know that I don't care how badly you screw up your life, I am not leaving. That's what he said to me. And I'm going like, no one has ever said that and everyone has always left. You know, the only other person that I felt had, had not done that was Jesus. At some point you need God with skin on, you need, because we're designed to be relational people and people who know your story we want, because we're shame-based, we want God to heal us without anybody else finding out about it, but it's not how it works. We have to find out that we can be truth tellers in a community of people who will not run away from the fact that we've become a truth teller. And, uh, and that's where the significance of our own stories matters. People have to learn to tell their own stories. This is why what you guys do is so fantastic, you know, and uh, where you get to just be present God with skin on while people learn to be truth tellers. And uh, well, that, that's an incredible gift to the, to humanity. Well, thank you. Thank you. The, there's a, there's a story that, that immediately we think of, of a, of a young man um, who actually lives in another country, not even the United States. And we've uh, listened to him uh, for, for several years. And he wrote to us once that um, and we quote, I, I still have no idea how you know so much about me and yet accept me the way I am. And that's just profound something and beautiful. We all need. And it's something, that, it's something that we all need. You know, I, I didn't need people to justify the way that I was because a lot of it was wrong and it was broken. I needed people to see me and love me and want the best for me and tell me the truth of who I was. You know, here's, a, here's an example, prodigal son, right? He's been in the pits, he's wasted his, his money, he's, he is so full of shame and desperate that he's willing to be a farmhand in his father's house. And he comes with head down, he's got his little pre-set up confession, right? This is what I want to say to my dad. He's future tripping, right? He's got it all set up. The father doesn't even care. Doesn't care about listening to it. What does the father do? Tells him the truth of his being. By how? By putting a robe on him, putting a ring on him, and throwing the party. He is saying... I don't care about the lies you believe about yourself, right? I'm going to tell you the truth of who you are. So that's a piece that we need. That's the encouragement to stay in the fight, to be all in, to, to be a truth teller, take the consequences, turn our face into the wind, all of those kinds of things. But we do it within the context of relationship. Paul, could you talk about this idea of truly embracing who you are and part of that embracing who you are is embracing imperfection and the fact that we all make mistakes. I was thinking the other night of my, this is Tom, my, my nine-year-old is laying in bed and he asked me just a simple question. He loves to ask these profound questions right before he's ready to go to sleep. It's probably just, he's stalling. I was describing some of the news events of the day and that there was a, a mass shooting recently 
And he asked me, so is, is that a bad person? And I tried to respond by saying, it's not a bad person. It's a person who is good, who made bad choices. And there's a difference in the way that we see people. And the fact is, is that we all make imperfect decisions and, and just embracing who we are and our, yeah. our imperfections. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. One of our grandbabies, I think it was Gavin, when he was like six, he turns to his dad and says, so did Jesus ever make mistakes? <laughs> and our son, Chad's very wise. He says, that's a great question, Gavin. What do you think? And he thinks for a second, he says, yeah, I think he made mistakes because how else are you going to learn anything? And uh, there's something so profound about that. So simple. You know, and I always make this joke about the fact that Jesus never told a parable about, you know, carpentry because he wasn't very good at it. <laughs> you know, he always told parables about stuff other people were good at. And you never heard about the carpet, uh, the carpenter guy in Nazareth who could make perfect doors, you know, and uh, mistakes aren't, aren't sin. There is evil and there is a choice to side with, with darkness and lies and, and perpetrate dysfunction and evil that, that we acknowledge that is not a declaration of the value of that person at all, or the truth of that person. Like Paul says, we judge no one according to the flesh. Well, that's all flesh stuff. You know, the brokenness that expresses itself in betrayal, the addiction to lying, the addiction to certainty. These are all things that deprive us of our humanity. One of the things I also like to say is that the, the reason Jesus chose not to sin is that he didn't want to become less human. And part of that is, is that God has a very high view of humanity as we ought to as well. And when you begin to see the truth of people's beings, that's what you, that's what you relate to. You still have to deal with all the brokenness and all the damage and all the lies that are believed by them or been, and all the perpetration that's happened to them or that they have perpetrated. Yeah, all that you've got to work out but it doesn't make a statement about the intrinsic nature of a being who is made in the image and the likeness of God, who is created in Christ and moves and has their being in Christ, whether they know it or not. And that's just quoting scripture in case anybody was wondering. Because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a little, her you know, potentially heretical. heretical and, uh, yeah. yeah. And, but yeah, so we, we, Walk as people who love in a world where blindness is rampant. And that's part of the suffering that we choose to take on, that we see both. We see the true and intrinsic nature of a person, regardless of how they are acting out of their brokenness and what's been done to them. But a lot of times people don't actually want to get to know someone because they'd rather categorize them and then assassinate the category. You know, you, you don't want to understand their humanity. And this happened in the shack, right? With, with the judgment scene. And, um, and um, by the way, in a couple, well, like actually on this Saturday, I'll be back on death row in Tennessee with a friend of mine who's been on death row for 35 years, Terry King. And, um, and when I first met him, it was because of the shack and it was because of the cave scene, um, the judgment scene. And Terry said, he said to me, he said, you know what? It, it wasn't until I read that chapter that I actually owned what I had done. He had murdered a woman. 
when he was 18 high and, and, um, on drugs and alcohol. And, um, he said, I never had owned it because I sat in the seat of judgment myself against the pedophiles on death row. At least I wasn't as bad as them. And it's like, because he sat in judgment, he could not own his own stuff. And he said it was so powerful, the conviction when he read that chapter, he was literally crawling on the floor of his own cell trying to get out of his own skin. And that's how he described it. And that's what we do. You know, we take a position of superiority or self-righteousness in order to judge others. And Paul's saying, don't, don't even judge yourself that way because we will. And it's like, no, no, don't do that. Begin to recognize in yourself, love yourself because you can't give to your neighbor what you haven't embraced for yourself. Agape, God is love. That kind of a love is other-centered self-giving. There has to be a self uh, from which to love. And then so it's like, all right, the, the healthier I become as a human being, the greater my capacity to love. And this is where I think a lot of people get stuck in their heads, you know, theologically or whatever. They learn something new and then they disassociate themselves from the people that they have been a part of because they now feel like they've moved on. And it's like, no, if, if what you are learning and growing in does not increase your capacity to love, you're just playing some kind of a mind game. Everything that is true ought to free us to love in a more pure, expansive way. You know, that's... Uh, as Bruce Coburn, the musician, writes, that's the beauty of the angel beast. You know, we're, we're caught in the divine because we're made in the image of God in a world that's broken. And that's, you know, and, and we become less than human uh, as a result. And the call back is, is to the truth of our being, to true humanity, which is made in the image and likeness of God and shares in the, in the divine. Uh, Paul, that, that is a message when we speak uh, to a variety of groups and when we preach in churches. It's a, it, it, that is the message that we constantly share in one way or another. <laughs> We're always trying to find as many, many ways that we can say that same thing uh, that you're saying right now because we believe that it's uh, a message that is so profoundly needed. No question. And that, that so many people just do not understand or believe themselves and we we want people to believe that to know that and so we we along with you along with you are trying it's absolutely needed it absolutely and we we are we hate to say this we're just about out of time but there, there, there there's one question we want to ask you or one thing we'd like you to talk about a little bit you know as we're, we're professional listeners it's it's one of our roles and we love an insight that you that you have um that you have stated and, it, and it's, it's this that you said that people are dying to be heard and that when we get to listen to other stories we are on holy ground we love that i do too we believe that i do too and could you could you as we begin to close today could you just say more about that holy ground is the ground in which god is burning away everything that is not true inside a person's life but it is their life it is their story it is the confluence of the relationships that have been a part of their history um, not just the history that they are cognitively aware of, but subconsciously has an impact on them and genetically that goes back historically. When somebody invites you into that space, and you know this as listeners, 
most often they are not looking for a solution. They're looking to be heard. They're wanting to know that their story actually matters and that somebody will just be present to it. Exactly. And, um, you know, we come from a tribe of people that we always want to give them an answer. You know, we always want to give them a solution. There's a reason you take off your shoes and, and you're quiet when you enter holy space like that. It's, it is so sacred. And, um, yep. <laughs> and, you know, I watch this over and over because I've been given an incredible gift. And that is because of how I write and how I speak, people trust me with their stories. And so I get them all the time. There's no other way to describe it than holy ground. This is sacred, you know, and when they tell you the story and then they let you in and you see the emotions and, and you feel the emotions and you get to participate by presence, there is nothing that is like it. It is too beautiful for words. It is healing, not just for them, but for you. It touches places in your own heart. It reminds you of things that are true that you may have forgotten and it allows you to see uh, humanity through uh, a lens that, that they can provide. Only they can provide that particular lens because of their particular story. And it's, um, it's always a two-way street. It is a beautiful thing. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you for sharing your story. Your testimony is so powerful. And um, gosh, we are, we've walked on holy ground just in this episode. Yeah, two-way street, brothers. We really have. <laughs> two-way street. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah. And thank you. thank you. Thank you again for for all that you're doing. So appreciative of your words and what you do and how you, we believe, provide light and hope to people and which leads to healing and joy and peace. And um, we're grateful for that. So thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Every little every little bit. Every little choice to forgive, to, to be a truth teller, every little bit changes the entire cosmos. Every person matters. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. We just wanted to thank all of you for tuning in today, and we look forward to you joining us in the future. If you have any questions or would like to learn more about our nonprofit, Someone to Tell It To, you can go to our website, which is someonetotellitto.org. Again, thank you so much for joining with us. We appreciate your interest. We appreciate your time, and we hope that you have learned something, and we'll want to take that something with you wherever you go. Thank you.